Spill it is true stories told in front of an audience. Everyone has a story. Are you ready to spill it? Guest editor, Ryan Azada. The stories from this episode are from the 2023 Spill It Grand Slam, which was held on November 17th at Black Lodge Video. Today's stories are from Kathy Lofton, Ethan Taylor, and Darlene Reed. I think looking at everybody, most of you are old enough to know Eastwood's movie, Escape from Alcatraz. Well, actually, I had a similar experience, and this is my real true story. It was late summer of 1984, and I found myself getting off a bus late at night, 11.30 p.m., with a group of women lined up, and I was at the end of the line. And I heard someone yelling and screaming. And since I was at the very end, I couldn't quite make out what was being said, so they came down to the end and vehemently asked me, did I understand and hear what was being said? I really didn't, but I just said, yes. And she said, yes, what? And I said, yes, I did. But that wasn't the answer. She said, the answer is yes, ma'am. And it's always yes, ma'am. From there, it went downhill. I knew I had made a mistake. I was at a place where we were surrounded by water. There was one road into this place and one way out. And they told us that there were alligators in the water, so think twice about trying to swim away. And at that point, I knew I made the wrong decision in what led me here. So they would probably deny this if they were here, but the people in this place were abusive verbally. I was physically punished by exercise if I didn't comply. They made you feel this small, and at the end of the day, I said, this isn't the place for me. Now, some of you may have guessed it's not prison for me. I could be a prisoner. I need to be a 201, but I'm not. This was actually Paris Island, South Carolina, Ura Marine Corps Basic. I made the attempt to become a woman Marine. I didn't want to go to college at first, even though now I have multiple degrees because they scared me straight. I decided as an only child I was going to be the few and the proud. Ain't none few and proud about what I went through. But I went to the island and I quickly learned that I was no Goldie Hawn. I was no Private Benjamin. This was not a walk in the park. I did not do well under these circumstances, with people in my face, yelling at me, calling me every name under the sun, and making me do things that I did not think were legal or permissible, but they told me, whatever goes on here stays here. So, here I find myself, and I thought I was going to escape, just like from Alcatraz, because things were just that bad for me in Paris Island, South Carolina. And so my bunk was by the back door for one, one while in our squad bay. And I sat up one night in the storm, and I looked, 
And I said, just run, just run, just run. But I hesitated because three other women had tried to run because it was just that bad. And one of them was able to hide for three days. And when they told us that I clapped, my drill instructors didn't appreciate that, I was glad. But she came back because she got hungry. And so that's why she came out of hiding. And I knew I liked to eat, and I wasn't even making it on those three meals a day that they were giving us because they were running us to death, marching us to death in formation. And so I said, I cannot do without food, so that's out. So one day, I came up with another escape plan. They're very, very deceptive in the military. I learned that the devil does not wear pride, the devil wears camis and combat boots. They were really, really evil. So they said, who knows how to drive really well? And I raised my hand quickly. I said, oh, this is my chance to get up out of this hole. Like I said, they were deceptive. It was not a Jeep that they had me driving. They had a giant wagon full of batteries for the targets on the rifle range. And they made me drag it all the way down a road by hand to the rifle range. And by then, I was really mad. I was plotting like Kathleen Turner and Serial Mom. I was going to get them. And I said, maybe if I take my glasses off on the rifle range. Because if you've been in the military, you know you can't wear glasses that are street issue. They have to be military issue. You can't wear contacts. But you can't wear them when you are trying to fire an M16 either. They make you take them off. And I was blind as a bat back then. So I said, this is my excuse. If I shoot one of them in the foot and say it was an accident, they will send me home. But my good conscience told me not to do that. Fast forward. The worse things got, the worse I said, I got to go home. I got to get out of here. So one day I requested mass. And for those of you who are not in the military, that means I had to request to speak to the head devil in camos and cambo boot, cam, combat boots, rather, woman on the island. And she was the top in command. And I told her that I felt I needed to go home. And they said, people don't just walk out of the Marine Corps private loft. That's now how it works. And I said, well, I'm going home, and that's just that on that. I had an attitude all while I was in basic. Um, I had an attitude. I talked back, and I would always get smart with them. And even though my uniform was always wrinkled, I was always late getting online because I was helping somebody else, they said I was a leader. They said, you're not good at this, but we can tell you're a leader. So I was bold like a leader, and I said, I'm going home, and this, that, on that. And she said, I'll make a deal with you. If a doctor tells me there's a reason I should let you go, I'll let you go. Otherwise, you will stay here and stay here and stay here until you become a woman Marine. I refuse to let you go. So before I get to the part of how I cut loose, know that I'm a pretty bold person. I'm a Gemini, I'm fearless. There are very few things in Memphis that frighten me, but that island instilled fear in me. They made me repel off a 50-foot tower rather twice. The second time, it was lightning. And I said, okay, obviously I'm gonna die on this island. 
And then we had to go into the gas chamber. And those of you who have been in Marine Corps Basic know that's a part of training. They don't tell you the masks aren't sealed. They don't tell you that the stuff gets in your lungs and burns the crap out of you. They don't tell you that it feels like you are in the electric chair. And so they wanted me to do that a second time because they did what's called recycling. They put me back two weeks because they said I wasn't up to par, which meant I had to do things twice. And so I told them emphatically, I will not go back into the gas chamber. And I'm warning you, I will not be responsible for what happens if you make me do that. I cannot do that again. So I put my faith to the test. I sat on the ground while I waited till they sent me in, and I was rocking. I was just rocking back and forth saying, Lord, if you exist, and I've been calling on you all these years, I need you to show up now. I'm very serious when I say that. All of a sudden, the wind started kicking up. The sky started turning black, and I opened my eyes and I looked and I saw that DI for drill instructor coming toward me, and she said, get your things private loft and a hurricane is coming. I did not have to go in the gas chamber, and that was my confirmation. I knew the Lord was with me, and I was going home. So, back to how I cut loose. I walked to the doctor's office, actually it was a psychiatrist she wanted me to see to prove I needed to go home at the hospital base, or the 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 base hospital rather and see I'm getting nervous even just thinking about that place and so the psychiatrist asked me how are you doing what's going on so we had our little talk we had our little conversation and I don't lie I'm a really really honest person but I'm very good at synthesizing information so I used my other stories to my advantage and so one of the questions he asked, and I didn't know he was going to ask this, was, have you ever heard bells ringing and no one else has? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I have. <laughs> there is a church in Memphis, and when I was in high school, my friend and I used to ride share because we didn't live in the school district. And so every day between 3 and 3.30, we would be at a stoplight, and I would always hear bells. And Kay, her mom, and her sister would always be running off at the mouth. So they never heard them because they were talking, and I would be in the back seat doing homework or something. So when he asked that question, the answer was yes. And I said, yes, sir, I hear bells, and nobody else hears them. And they told me I was crazy. And so, like Viola Davis in The Help, I said to myself, write that down. And he did. Dude wrote that down. And so the next thing you know, he said, I don't think that we're really good for you, and I'm going to recommend you for honorable discharge. To this day, no one knows how I pulled that off. They said, nobody just gets out of the military like that, honorably discharged, doing what you did. But yet it happened. So... I walked on back with that letter in my hand to see the head, the head woman Marine on that island, and I slid that paper across the mail street and said, I told you so, I'm going home. And so that's how I got out of Marine Corps Basic. But the clincher is, I came on a bus 
And I don't know who made this call or who made the arrangements, but they sent a limo to pick me up. <laughs> I don't know if that has happened to anybody else in any other branch of the military. I don't know if that's standard, but I kid you not, they sent a car service, a limo for me to take me to the airport. And to this day, I was scared straight, and that's what got me into Memphis State University. I said, I will never do that again. I said, Mama, please let me come home. Mama, please. I wrote a letter. Just let me back in the house. I'll do whatever. And to this day, I have two and a half masters of bachelors and have been through multiple leadership programs because they told me I was a leader and that I am. And that is how I escaped from Alcatraz. So, as a man, can't, I uh, can't get pregnant, but my wife, luckily, she did. And throughout the whole pregnancy, it's just nine months of, uh, of waiting on one moment for the baby to come. And so, we eventually decided, okay, we're going to have a home birth. That'll be fun. I, my youngest brother was a home birth, and I remember watching Tool Time while he was born in the bedroom. So I was like, okay, like that we can do a home birth. That's fine. Like that's that's a good memory from when I was a child. Was, um, because of course, you know, Tim the Toolman Taylor. My last name's Taylor. And so we prepare for this home birth, and you have to get like the chucks pads up on the bed, and then two sets of like shower curtains and all this stuff to like prepare the bed to be like medically ready, and like you have to like bake. Um, Bed sheets so they're sanitary. So we do all this stuff, um, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and then, you know, it gets to 40 weeks, and we keep waiting, and, you know, you go and see the midwife every week, and then, you know, baby's not coming, but everything looks fine, so we'll wait a couple, couple more weeks, and then still not coming, so it's like, all right, let's, use, let's try castor oil, because it induces pregnancy because it gets your smooth muscle all moving and the midwife tells us how to prepare for that you know go and get flushable wipes because it's castor oil and it's going to do maybe make the baby come but it's going to definitely make other stuff come um and still you know it's it's not fair flushable wipes they aren't flushable they should be flushable they i looked on the other day it said plumber approved and I'm like, what, is that? what does that even mean? Plumber approved flushable wipes, so I can flush these, but then they don't tell me to. But other, so we're waiting for this moment for the baby to come. He did, but time goes on, doesn't come. And so we decide, all right, we're going to go to the hospital. And we, our hospital was over at Region 1. We were going to go with the midwives because I felt pretty good about them because we had seen them and my wife had been seeing them, so we, you know. She, we decide we're going to go. Well, we're basically told, well, you got to go to the hospital. You can't wait anymore. And so my wife and I go to the hospital, and we were admitted. And I believe, I don't know if it was the time before that or if it was this time, but when she's, she's admitted and she is, like, 
like sent to like the room before you get to the room and she's beside someone who's like handcuffed to the chair and who's like laughing uncontrollably and so I'm like and she's like texting me this and I'm waiting in the uh, the room and like the alarm keeps going off in the building um, and I'm just like okay well I guess we're here to have a baby I thought we were gonna have it at home and it was gonna be so peaceful but I guess we'll have it here and that's gonna be okay and we get admitted and we get back to the room uh, the delivery room and it's pretty nice it's big and it's spacious and they ask us, like, how, you know, do you want a lot of people to come in here? Do you want a few people? Because they're like, well, you know, it can be the bare minimum. Or if you want, like, as many people as possible, it can be, you know, as many doctors and nurses as you want. And we're like, well, we probably want to be just a few. Um, and we wait and we wait. And they get, she gets hooked up to all the IVs and their blood. And I thought it would really, be really funny to, like, record her getting, like, the IVs put in. And I like, showed her that, like, 15 minutes later. And she was like, that's not at all so keep waiting and it becomes night and the baby's still not coming and they give her like you know the medicine that's supposed to make the baby come uh, and they're like okay we'll wait until the morning then start giving you some more some Pitocin and that should really make the baby come and so I run out and against the doctor's orders I get her a sandwich from quick check and I give her that to her because we're like, oh, you know, it's going to be fine. Well, she'll eat a sandwich. You know, she needs her energy for labor. And so we do that. Go to sleep. Uh, she doesn't sleep that much. I sleep much more than her, which is to be expected. And so the morning comes, and the contractions start coming more and more, closer together, and they're stronger. And they get too much. And so she says, okay, well... She was holding off on the epidural, and she says, okay, I'm going to get the epidural. And so this really jolly uh, anesthesiologist comes in who, and gives her the epidural. Um, I'm still, I'm just, I don't know. She was, for, it was like 8 o'clock in the morning, and this, she was just like so happy, and she's like putting a, I guess a spinal tap in my wife. I'm like, like read the room. She just, she did, she just didn't. And so she gets the epidural, and about 30 minutes later, um, like the really annoying, like, uh, you know, I never wore it, but she said it was really annoying, like the, the heart monitor on the baby that tracks the baby's heart rate, you know, it, it starts being all wonky, and the doctor comes in, and she's like, you're not the nurse, and like, let me adjust it, and she adjusts it, and, you know, she's like, okay, well, it's on the baby, but it looks like the heart rate's kind of strange, um, so they get the doctor, and then that doctor gets another doctor, and then like within like 10 minutes, there's like six doctors in the room, and there's like 10 nurses, and they're like, we have to get the baby out of there. And at that point, I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. And so my wife is just like, do whatever you have to do, get the baby out. If it's got to be a C-section, just do it. And so they start preparing her for surgery in the room. They start like shaving and, and putting more drugs in her and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just texting my parents and like the midwife. They're like, okay, like they're taking her back there, which whenever I think back on, I'm like, oh, that sounds so ominous. I'm like, they're taking her. And so they take her back and I go with her and then I've got to wait a minute because I got to get like my full body like PPE. Um, stuff on and I'm on this weird little like 
coat closet, and I'm just like, it, it's, it was, I don't know, it was very serene in the little coat closet. I have like a, a really nice picture. Um, just like the, the colors on the wall were at the same time like, they were just soothing. I guess the, they just knew what they were doing when they painted that like pre-op room. And so I get, all, I get all ready and there's like people coming in and out and there's just like, you know, medical students and nurses and they're all like, you know, jolly, happy. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning, so it's not like they've been, you know, it's late at night. And so I, I hear this really, and they've taken her in and I'm preparing to go and I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I, I'm a big rule follower, follower and I'm like waiting to be told I can come in. And I hear a big pop and I'm like, well, I think that, was her water breaking? I don't know what's going on. And I'm waiting, I'm like sticking my head out of this room and they tell me, um, finally they, like someone comes out and like, hey, what are you still doing out here? I thought you were in that room. I was like, no, I'm just waiting to be told. Um, and so I go in and the baby's already out. He's in the little warmer. My wife's like, I didn't expect her to be strapped down, but she was like strapped down to the table. And so, I go and they say, you can pick up the baby. And I pick him up and I bring him over and like rub him against the head, her head. And you know, it wasn't how the moment I thought it was gonna be, but that's how it went. And it was beautiful. Okay, thank you. One of the best memories of my life was going to Liberty Land, eating the corn dogs, um, the smoked turkey legs, and uh, the funnel cakes, winning prizes, popping balloons. But the one thing that really stood out that everybody wanted to ride was the Zip and Pippin roller coaster. Yes. Um, so who here likes roller coasters and remember the Zip and Pippin? Okay, well, guess what? Well, guess what? Tonight, we're all going to get on the Zip and Pippin. Okay, so I need the audience to help me with this, with this ride. So we're standing in line, okay, to wait on our turn to get on the Zip and Pippin ride. So finally, it stops. And it's our turn. So we walk up, we sit on the bench seat, and we pull the lap bar down. Okay, come on. We pull the lap bar. And we sit in. See, nowadays the kids don't know what that means because they have like a luxury seat with the pillows behind them and they got <laughs> the thing that comes across their shoulders. Mm-mm, mm-mm. We old school. We on a wooden roller coaster in a wooden bench seat with a lap bar, okay? So as, it's, as it starts to uh, move, it's like chains you can hear. And then it starts ascending. And then it finally gets to the top and you have your eyes closed, everybody eyes closed, and then you get to the point where you can say, okay, I can do it. And you open one eye and you go, 
Thou get up! And then it dips 70 feet. Okay, so you're like, man, I love this freaking ride. Okay, so, so you know, as time went on, that was still one of the highlights of my life, riding the zip and pippin'. If everything else broke down, the zip and pippin' was there. So over a course of time, the zip and pippin', it became a little old. You have to keep in mind it was built in the early 1900s. So even when I rode it as a child, it was about 75 years old. Well, Memphis decided that, um, now this is a landmark, and Memphis decided that the Zip and Pippin is old and, you know, we don't need it anymore. It's just like us. You know, as we get older, sometimes we're put to the nursing home, but uh, the Zip and Pippin, Memphis decided to demolish it. Now, keep in mind, the Zip and Pippin was chains that moved, and oftentimes they had to put the oil on it. So when the Zip and Pippin heard that he was going to be torn down, he got pretty sad, and he remembered that he survived World War, War, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, the Civil Rights Movement, and here he was about to be torn down. And as he was being demolished, there was still some oil left on the chain, and the oil started to drip like tears. That with all the love they had given in Memphis, they're now being destroyed. And he wondered, will I ever give joy again to children, kids, old and young alike? The Zip and Pippin was sold from Memphis for a mere $2,500. And it made its way to Green Bay, Wisconsin. So from being built in Memphis with love and surviving so much in history and still giving love to so many Memphians, it was demolished and sold eventually to Green Bay, Wisconsin. It survived. What became one man's trash became another man's treasure. And Green Bay, Wisconsin invested $3.8 million into the Zip and Pippin. And it's one of the oldest wooden roller coasters still in the United States. And millions of people have ridden the Zip and Pippin. A roller coaster ride is a life is just like a roller coaster. You have ups and downs and twists and turns, you know, you have the thrill, and you also have sadness. But let us be just like the Zip and Pippin and enjoy the thrill and the excitement of life. Thanks for listening to Spill It. If you're interested in having an event or telling your story, reach out to us at spillitstories at gmail.com.